listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Adam Rita. Coach Rita is the definition of a football lifer. As he himself recently noted, coach or die, this is what I do. Adam has literally coached football around the world, but here at home, he is most well known for winning six Grey Cup championships in eight appearances as either a coach or general manager with your Toronto Argonauts and a variety of other Canadian Football League teams. Since retiring from the CFL in 2010, Adam has been coaching professional football in Europe while concurrently coaching high school football right here in the GTA. Welcome, Coach Rita, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am excellent, thank you. I am right now looking out my window in Mississauga, Ontario. Beautiful day. How is your summer going? And may I ask, how is your family? My family's doing fine. Uh, I just got a, a four-month-old granddaughter. Which Congratulations. Has, uh, been a pleasure for us. Um, we start next week on July 19th at uh, Clarkson Football North, our prep team. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm actually going to go to Europe and coach this year. Um, I had to turn down a couple of jobs because of the timing. My priorities here in um, in Clarkson, Football North, so I have to kind of work around that schedule. It's been uh, more than a decade since you were involved with the CFL. I'm obviously very happy to see you still very much involved in football. Why can't you leave the sidelines and retire into a calm lifestyle that you have so clearly earned? You're, you are the football lifer this is this is what i do whether i'm in the cfl i retired from the cfl for one reason and it's basically i wanted my summers yes and after 30 years i was pretty tired so i took a break if i i did not coach for one full year got my knee repaired got it replaced and and um well, thank Michael Shea for all the parts that he uh, recommended for my knee. It's yes. working well. Oh, good, good. Um, and uh, I took a year off, and then I went to the Czech Republic. And uh, I love coaching in Europe. Uh, I use football to travel. Uh, you know, when you come from a little island in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific, you want to see as much as you can before you you know, dust to dust, right? <laughs> so well, we're going to get to all that because you certainly have an incredible story. With your permission, let's go all the way back and get the Adam Rita story. You are not a native Torontonian nor a native Canadian. Where and when were you born, coach? I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, at Queens Hospital, but I was raised on the island of Kauai. Um, in a little town called Puhi, which means eel in, Hawaii, in Hawaiian. And uh, it's a little plantation village. My dad was a paniola or a cowboy, and my mom was uh, worked in a pineapple factory during the, when they started canning. And, and then I have three brothers. They all have been deceased. Uh, I'm the oldest and the only surviving 
last of the Rita boys other than my sons. Okay. I, I want to share, I think this is some absolutely awesome Adam Rita trivia. As a young boy, you were a member of a canoe club and something very Hollywood happened. Tell us about that. Well, I assume you're talking about Blue Hawaii. I am talking um, about Blue Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, I was just, someone posted on Facebook, uh, the wedding scene where they're on the lagoon. It's at the Coco Palms uh, Resort, which was destroyed by the hurricane. But the, the fish ponds were ancient Hawaiian built, and they built the hotel around it. So when they had the wedding scene um, with Elvis and whoever the lady was uh, on the canoe, double canoe, that was our canoe. And they hired all the whole canoe club to do the paddling. Now, every time I look at that video, I can't find myself. You know, <laughs> you know how many times we took that, how many crews we, we shifted in and out. So I'm not sure if the final cut we were actually in there. The other one was Donovan's Reef with uh, John Wayne and Lee Marvin, and there there are tons of movies made on Kauai. Yeah, and of course. I'm the only native that has to have makeup on because everybody else is dark and I'm kind of pale compared to everybody else. So it was kind of embarrassing that I had to be darkened. <laughs> hey, that, that's Hollywood for you. And just for the listener, yeah. what we're talking about is, is uh, Adam was uh, appeared as a young, young boy. He was paddling a canoe in the wedding scene of the 1961 Elvis Presley movie, Blue Hawaii. What was your family like? Uh, family life like and your upbringing in Hawaii. What do you remember about those days? Well, all I remember was I didn't think, I didn't realize how poor we are until I left uh, Hawaii. You know, if you're going to be poor, the best place to be poor is in Hawaii. Because of the weather. You don't need clothes, you don't need shoes, you don't need anything until you go to high school. You know, then you got to wear shoes, but now they don't even wear shoes in in high school. So, Economically, uh, we weren't that well off. We are like most of the people that worked on the plantation. We, uh, we had a great life. Um, you know, the kids, uh, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And our village really did that with, uh, with all of us. And uh, the, thing that, the thing that changed my life was sports. And, and my number one sport was paddling. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that since I was uh, about 11 years old. And my paddling coach was also uh, a football player. His dad played at Purdue back in the day. And and so he, he was interested in me paddling, but he also gave me some pointers on, on football. And, uh, you know, may he rest in peace. Uh, those football things that he taught me was like, back in ancient times when you carried a spear when you went to play, I guess, because it was the dirtiest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so needless to say, I, I was smart enough not to use that. But back in the day when you played barefoot football, you know, everything, everything was a go. I mean, yeah, you know, so it was, uh, you know, kill a guy with the ball and, and see if he survives, you know. So it, it was a, a great way to learn the game. Uh, from him, but technically it wasn't very sound. Luckily, I had some pretty good coaches in high school, but he was uh, my paddling coach was an awesome person, and uh, you know I learned a lot about life from him and his wife, who was also a 
she was a school teacher by trade, but basically became a housewife. And because the guys in the canoe club were all his, her sons, you know, and mm-hmm. daughters and everything like that. So I had a, I got no complaints about my life. Uh, like I said, we were dirt poor, but I never knew it until I went to the mainland, you know, to Idaho. And I go, oh, hmm. Well, you know? talk about a transition so, coach. Uh, you went yeah. to Boise State University. You graduated in 1970 with a Bachelor of Science. How did you get from Hawaii to Idaho? And talk a little about the uh, both the temperature and the culture shock. Well, I got to Idaho because our head coach at the time in Idaho was um, uh, Coach Smith. And he had a tradition since 19... 19- 56 when they won the national championship when it was a junior college of having Hawaiians on the team. So the tradition carried over until today, probably. And uh, it was kind of a word of mouth. You know, if a guy recommended a Hawaiian to him, he automatically uh, paid attention. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was really quite, quite uh, tragic or funny or whatever you want to call it. Uh, we had no black people on our team. Mm-hmm. The blackest people were the Hawaiians. Okay. And I didn't know he was a racist. He was a, he was a damn good coach. I'm not sure if he was racist, but we did by accident get a black player from uh, Pennsylvania, but he didn't know he was black. In mm-hmm. those days, no cell phone, no, you know, you just did it by mail. And his name was Pudding Grayson from Pennsylvania. He was a quite little running back. But he never got to start. But he did get to play eventually because the crowd kept. And then we, from there, we went to a four-year school. We brought in Tony Knapp. And I just stayed on. I was going to go to Central Washington. But why move from Boise, Idaho, when you have a great culture of Hawaiians, you know? Yep. And, and then Tony Knapp came in and, and I had about my third knee surgery and I wanted to get in coaching. So he allowed me to do that. And hence my career started and he took good care of me. He was my, he was like a dad to me. And, and, uh, I was his protege, I guess. And, yeah. and, and he taught me the game of, of analytics, not, they call it analytics today, but you know, how to, uh, different things that could happen to you in situations, how to attack it, what's your counter move to what they're doing, how to, how to analyze defenses and offenses and special teams. He taught me everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he was a very open-minded guy. He could go from a pro offense to a spread offense to anything. We couldn't recruit tight ends at Boise, so we went to a full backfield, three, mm-hmm. three backs, and went to double slot was able to shift. Uh, this is well before running shoot and spread offenses and stuff like that. And in those days, there was no internet. So everything you learn, you had to process yourself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And look at video and analyze and go to clinics and, and different things like that to learn from other people. But basically, I was the best football coach in the world. I mean, Tony Knapp was – I mean – he had more number one draft. He was at Utah State, he had great draft picks. He was in BC Lions. He was kind of everywhere. I, he probably still is about the sixth winningest coach in the history. Wow. And he was a Polish guy. 
he came from Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, in a Model T. He said they must have had 100 flat tires on the way to <laughs> Moscow, Idaho. He played there with an All-American, and the war broke out. And then they played in the military, and, you know, all that stuff happened. And then, and he's taken winning, uh, losing programs and turned them into winning programs. And I was just lucky to go into, go into school at Boise at the time. And uh, so he took me under his wing. And, um, and as long as I wanted to learn, he was right there for me. You know, oh. and, and the whole family, they were very, very good to me. And, and I was good to them because our, at that time, me and another young coach were their best recruiters. And we were able to bring in some really good football players. But we could never recruit a tight end. Um, but we could recruit a lot of running backs, receivers, quarterbacks, skilled people. Our two guards were ex-fullbacks. Uh, our left tackle was a Hawaiian. Our right tackle was a Hawaiian. Our two defensive tackles were Hawaiian. So I got to recruit from Hawaii and the Northwest. Uh, a lot of the players of the Hawaii went to Columbia Basin Junior College in Washington, Wenatchee, and all that stuff. So that was my recruiting area, and we always had Hawaiians on our team. They blended very well with with the other people that we are. Most of our people were from Idaho or mm-hmm. Northern uh, California, the Northwest. Uh, but the majority of our players were from Idaho. So there was a good blend. Uh, a great tradition of having Hawaiians on the team. And consequently, there's still many, many, many Hawaiians that live in Boise, Idaho. And uh, so we always had a luau on the 4th of July. And, uh, you know, so it was, it's still a tradition till today. The Hawaiians play the music, they provide all the entertainment. The first year we did it, we invited the whole school. You got to remember, there's only 1,800 students in the school. Yeah. So we had a big luau. We had three pigs in the ground for him. We had fish. We had everything shipped in, uh, other than the the pigs and the fish. And so we had all the flowers, all the tea leaves, even the lava rock shipped in from Hawaii by United Airlines because one of our players' dad worked for United. Uh, from Hawaii, and they shipped everything over, and we had uh, luau for the whole student body and teachers and everything on campus, and and, uh, and it's been a tradition since. Now, that luau has now changed to somebody's home because okay. it, got too, it got it got too weird. So now it's it's <laughs> basically the Hawaiians and their intimate friends. You know, which usually is another football player. Well, it's fascinating to think there's this Hawaiian community in Boise, Idaho, of all places. Just to tie everything together, Coach, in addition to getting your education, as you know, you played center at Boise State from 65 to 68. You, As you mentioned, you immediately transitioned from a player to joining your coaching career and doing recruiting with Boise State. After stints, coaching collegiately with the UNLV Rebels and the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors, you began your professional coaching career and first came to Canada in 1983 as an offensive coordinator with the BC Lions under head coach Don Matthews. Coach, what was your connection to Canada at that point and what brought you up to BC? In 1977, I was coaching at uh, UNLV and 
Vic Rapp from the BC Lions was looking at Raymond Strong, one of our running backs, and he noticed our receivers and quarterback play. And he called up Coach Knapp, who was we're not at Vegas, and he asked him who coached the receivers. And he said, Adam Rita. He said, I'd like to bring him in as a guest coach because in those days, the CFL, you only had four coaches at the most. So what they did for training camp, they brought in guest coaches. And the guest coach would coach a position and to help out the full-time coaches during training camp because four coaches can't manage 80 to 90 guys. Mm-hmm. So I brought, I was brought in as a receiver coach. But I actually turned the thing down twice. But my boss, who coached one year at BC Lions, said, the only person you know is me. If you're going to get another job, if I die, you need to get another job, right? Yeah. So he said, I accepted the job for you in BC. <laughs> so I had to take vacation time to go up there. Now, needless to say, my wife wasn't very happy about it, but was I married at the time? Yeah. So I went over and um, <laughs> never met the guy or anything. So I asked the secretary, how do I know who this guy is when he comes and pick it? picked me up at the airport here he said she's short and he's loud there's no way you can miss him and sure enough this little guy comes out hey coach you know and it was Vic Rapp and uh, I was a guest coach for him until he resigned or got fired um he wanted me to come up there as a full-time coach but I just couldn't see by that time I had gone to Hawaii University of Hawaii yeah. And I wanted to spend some time with my family. I've been away for a long, long time. So I did that, and I turned the job down full-time, but I still went back. I took vacation time, went back and coached. And then my last year coaching there, I met uh, a girl from Vancouver Island. We were at training camp. We eventually got married. And uh, when Don Manches took over the job in B.C., uh, I think the XFL came in and Hugh Campbell went to LA mm-hmm. and I was in LA at the time for the coaches convention, Steve Barato, my best friend who we coached together, Boise and at Vegas was there and he had just taken the job with the BC Lions as a defense coordinator for, for Don Matthews. So I said, I need to get out of Hawaii at the time because when they want to pass the ball, it's third down and 18, and I'm not real good at third down and 18 plays, you know. Yeah. So we started laughing. Who is? So he calls up Don, and Matt is, is up in his room. He says, ah, send Rita up because we had coached against each other when he was at Idaho and I was at Boise and also recruited his high school in Portland. So we knew each other quite well. And – so I go up to the room, and this was the funniest interview I've ever had in my entire life. I knock on the door. Don goes, come on in. So I go, hey, Rita, what's up? You know, we said, the guy is in bed taking a nap, stark-ass naked. So, <laughs> so, so that was our interview. I'm talking to a guy. He's laying in bed. Right? He goes, are you familiar with the double-slot offense? I said, yeah, that's what we kicked your ass with when you were at Idaho. He goes, yeah, well, I just thought I'd bring it up, right? So he says, you want the job? I said, well, you know, what do you want to do? He says, I want to run the offense similar to Edmonton, which I was familiar with, because that's what we ran at BC when I was a guest coach, because uh, Vic was at, at Edmonton. 
I said, I, I understand the offense, you know. So okay. He goes, when can you start? I said, well, after the letter of intent, because I'm still coaching at Hawaii. And to make a long story short, um, I accepted the job, and I didn't know basically what the pay was or anybody. I love the CFL. I love yeah. the way the game is played. I love Canada. You know, it was just the timing was perfect. And so so I leave the room. He said, the job's yours, blah, blah, blah. We shake hands. We leave. And Barada goes, Steve goes, well, you got the job? I go, yeah. He goes, that wasn't a very long interview. I said, well, I'm not going to sit there and talk to a guy who's naked. <laughs> I mean, he's he's under the covers, but you know what I mean? Interviewing and, uh, is very so different today, Coach. You know, he's a, Don is a crazy dude, right? I mean, he is the best guy I've ever worked with. Well, one of the best guys. Because basically, he gave you a philosophy. And all you have to do is live within a philosophy. And if you needed help, you'd ask. Yep. Or, you, you know, and and he left you alone. And that's what I'm really, really good at is when people leave me alone to do my job. If you don't like what I do, then fire me. That's just the way it is, right? Yep. And he did a good job of that. And, uh, and again, we're a limited number of coaches. He didn't know a lot of guys in the U.S. because he'd been in Canada for so long. So I brought in guys that he eventually hired, right? Mm-hmm. So the guest coach system in the old days was very important because if one of your full-time coaches left, you had somebody to choose from that you knew. You know? mm-hmm. But now, since then, the CFL has gone more to an eight-man staff. So you're more than covered, especially with a bigger roster. You got to remember when I first started, the roster was only 34, I think. Mm-hmm. So when the offense would come off the field and the, and the special teams are going on, there's nobody else on the bench but the backup guy and the coaches. You know, yeah. I go, holy mackerel, we don't have very many guys, right? Yeah. And he said, yeah, he says, you know, and you start getting injuries. And at the time, and until today, the the CFL is very frugal. You know, they're they're budget conscious. Uh, you know, they want to give the fans the most bang for their buck. Um, and uh, and they were very, very efficient. Now, there's a lot of different criticisms as you get along the way. But as you, if you're in it, you know what people are trying to do. If you're yeah. outside looking in, it's a whole different story, you know. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Now, Coach, after uh, after you had this start in BC, you left briefly to coach the UBC Thunderbirds in Canadian College, but then you returned to the CFL. And after Don Matthews' departure from the Argonauts in 1991, you became a first-time CFL head coach. And what a year it was. Easily one of the most exciting and memorable in the Argonauts' now 148-year history. Let me give you a quick summary before I get your thoughts. The Double Blue finished 1991 with the best record in the CFL, going 13-5. and You had eight CFL All-Stars, and you capped off this incredible year with a 36-21 victory over Calgary in the Grey Cup championship game. This was your first Grey Cup, and by the way, you also won Coach of the Year. We're going to talk about that season in a moment, but your specific memories of that first Grey Cup championship in 1991. It was a dream. It was uh, the whole thing was an unbelievable scenario, and nobody could be more perfect than me to be the head coach at that time. Because 
there was many, many egos involved. You're talking about Wayne Gretzky, John Kennedy, Bruce McNall. And then you go down our roster. We had an unbelievable roster that Mike McCarthy, our GM at the time, put together. And he added to what we already had. And if you remember, the previous year, we were the number one scoring team in all of professional football. And uh, we had the no huddle and all. Don, you know, Don allowed me to do some crazy stuff, you know. So we, we, we went ahead and did that. And I was very well protected by Don. And then when Don left to go to the World League, he wanted to take the whole staff. And I go, I'm not leaving the CFL. I mean, I turned down the NFL. I'm not going to go to a World League, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I stayed. And luckily, you know, Mike McCarthy offered me a contract, and I took it. And, you know, one thing happened after another. And and I remember going to training camp, and the three amigos show up, and and Wayne Gretzky's wife and shows up. With, I mean, it was a zoo. They had a big tent out there. The press was out there, and and we had Rocket. You know, we had Dave. We eventually got David Williams. We got all these great players: Pinball Clemens, Matt Dunnigan, Ricky Foggy. You can go down the list. Uh, if you look at the Hall of Fame, you know there's there's a lot of those guys that are in there. So basically, all I had to do the five losses we had defined our team. Okay. We could have easily gone 18 and all, but there were times when we needed to be humbled mm-hmm. and not by me, but by our opponent. And, and those times really built our team to a unit that was like a fist, you know, instead of an open hand slap, we had a fist, you know, we got the more adversity we had, the closer we got as a team and as a staff, you know, and, and you know, it's not, you know, it's pretty well known that I love my players. I go to war for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't you ever, ever do something to one of my guys. I will hunt you down, you know. And I'm a calm, easygoing guy. I don't get too riled up, except if you mess with one of my guys. Yep. You know. And so, basically, the, the relationship we had between myself and my and the players was basically you got my back. I got your back. I will go down. I don't give a damn about my job. I only care about you guys, mm-hmm. you know, and that's kind of the same vibe they gave back to me. Uh, it was a fun time. I, all I had to do was organize them and let them play and have fun. The big thing for me was our guys enjoyed what they did together. And I remember going to Saskatchewan, about 15 to 2,000 people would come and watch us warm up you wow. know, and get autographs, you know, and, and stuff like that all over. So I, I played the whole scenario out. I made, it, I made our team accessible to everybody. Yeah. You know? and, um, and, and our team was really good at that. I mean, I mean that pinball rocket. I mean, those guys loved it. They would sign autographs until the last person left, you know? And so we had a good, good group of guys and, and we're still in touch today. And, and, and they all be, have become successful and moved on into hall of fames with, you know, uh, in a CFL or, or the college or university or whatever. So I had good players. I just didn't have, I just didn't want to be sure that I didn't screw them up. You know what I mean? 
Well, so I really organized them, and then I gave them ownership to how they want to do the things. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk Although, a little more about your coaching philosophies. You are a very humble man to say that all you had to do was was have them have fun and let them go. But you had a lot more to do with it than that. We're going to talk about your philosophies. But for the listeners, let me set up that 91 season a little. It was significant and magical right from the get-go, quite literally, a true Hollywood story. In February of 91, the Toronto Argonauts were purchased by American businessman Bruce McNall, hockey's greatest ever player, Wayne Gretzky, and Canadian comedy icon John Candy for $5 million. Three months later, the new owners as you call them, the three amigos, they made a huge splash by signing the presumptive number one NFL draft choice, Raghib Rocket Ishmael, out of Notre Dame to a four-year contract worth $18 million. What was this three-ring circus like from the front row? I mean, you must have been, as you say, your whole job was to keep them organized and having fun, but what do you remember? I mean, this was an incredible time. Well, I, what I try to do is basically stay out of their way. Um, they deserve all the credit in the world. The players deserve all the credit in the world. I just happened to be there at the right place at the right time. Um, I was the right personality for them. Um, uh, I knew most of the players because I've coached them. And uh, wherever I went, uh, I tried to bring the players with me that, that I know had my back and I had, they know I had their back and uh, uh, professional sports is very, very, um, it, you know, you put enough pressure as a coach and as a player on yourself, but basically you, you owe a lot to the fans and you owe a lot to the organization, you know? So, you know, I tried to foster that within the players that, Every fan is important. When they call you out and they want something, go up to them, be nice to them. When you're, wherever you're at, you're not invisible. Okay, so be on your best behavior. If a young, if a lady has full of groceries and needs the door open, open it. You know, follow her out. You know, help her out. You know, I said this is a fan. Assume that everybody is a fan. You know. And so don't don't be a a hole, you know. And, and just because you're not feeling good that day, you're not going to spread the love, right? Yeah. So everything's got to be based on on I want to say love, but caring for other people. And uh, you know, some players will say that I'm a player coach. Other players will say I'm a player coach with a hard ass. You know. <laughs> so it depends what the player needs and what I need from them. Sure. It's the yeah. way I manage it. Each guy is different. Well, that's, that's a very important point. And I, I also want to ask you something very specific about that coming up. But I did want to ask you about your, if you don't mind, your personal recollections with four of the key people. I'll just go down them one at a time if you don't mind. Wayne Gretzky, what do you remember about dealing with him? Wayne was a sportsman. He, he was an athlete. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's some things, some, there's some stories that are pretty funny, but I remember one time he wanted to pay the guys. He and uh, Bruce McDowell we were opening up at Ottawa. And he said, Rocket Camp, I didn't play at Rocket because he had a slight hamstring. Okay. 
And so I wanted Rocket for the home opener. That that was my whole deal, right? So when the trainers told me he had a slight strain, I said, we're not going to dress him. And so the owners were quite concerned. And I said, well, just I understand your concern, but just remember this. We were a pretty good football team before Rocket got here. Mm-hmm. He's the cherry on top of the whole thing, right? I said, let's not use him up now, okay? Because if he pulls a ham, then he's out for six to eight weeks, okay? So they agreed, but they said, well, we got to motivate the team. I said, this team doesn't need motivation. I mean, we're the number one scoring team previously. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It's going to be a close game. They're going to kick the ball, the pinball, and he's going to run it back for a touchdown. We're going to win the game. They all laughed, <laughs> right? So he said, we're going to give you X amount of money for every point you score. Right? Wow. Go, you, are you going to bro- go broke? I said, we average 30-some points a game. Yeah. So if you're going to give that kind of money American, you're talking about you talking about blow the freaking salary cap? Just blow it right out. I said, you can't do that. I said, we got to do something else. You know, I don't want to – it's going to cost you more money. <laughs> yep. So we, we made another arrangement to, to – and I don't want to tell the players before the game. Afterwards, we'll give them whatever. I think they were jackets or whatever. I said, we'll do that. But before the game, you know, just let me handle it. Okay. I'm telling you, the way things happened, it was exactly the way I told you that. The game was closed. They kicked the ball to pinball. He runs back toward touchdown. We win the damn game. And they started calculating if they would have played, paid us in money, that would have been our whole year, year budget. You you <laughs> saved them quite a few bucks, yeah. Coach. And, and so I love your strategy. We, we Kick the ball. The game to... and we, we, we came back to Toronto and had a home opening, which was amazing. Yeah. And it was like a three-ring circus. We just happened to be one of the rings that was performing, you know, and we we had a hell of a game and Rocket had a great game and, and uh, and the rest was history. Well, you can't go wrong with a strategy like kick the ball to pinball and let him run run it back. The second of the four yes. people I want to ask about your personal recollections with was the late John Candy, who passed away in 1994. He was a huge CFL fan in addition to being a comedy legend. What do you remember about John Candy? Loved him. Yeah. <clears throat> He was like a player. Uh, he went to every game. Um, he uh, he loved our players. Yeah, he loved the game. He loved the CFL. Um, I remember we were playing Edmonton. It's not like we cruised through the league. Everybody was pretty damn good. You know, mm-hmm. We just happened to have a little bit more players than did. some people did, right? And um, and we we're playing and. Edmonton and Carberry's goals now. And John Candy runs onto the field and picks him up and carries him to the sideline. And I went ballistic. I told the trainers, don't ever let that happen again. I said, what if he had a broken neck or broken back and he lifted him up, right? So I said, John, don't do that again. You know, then I explained it to him and he went, oh, my God. You know, he was like almost ready to cry, you know. And I said, well, don't worry about it now. I'm just telling you, you know, you know Carl's tough. He'll tell us, you know, if he... anyway, that was one of the stories. The other story was we were playing 
Saskatchewan and John Gregory was the head coach. He had a TV show. So I'm downstairs. I forgot my freaking toothbrush or something. So I'm down in a convenience store at the hotel in Regina. And I'm in shorts, flip-flop, and a T-shirt. And um, and John Candy comes cruising through the deal, and he sees me. Coach, we're going to John Gregory's TV show. I've got two limos here. You are, John, i got to go get dressed. F that. We're going. Yeah. So now I'm flip-flops, uh, shorts, and a T-shirt. I'm going to a freaking TV show. Right? If it was radio, I'm perfectly dressed. Yeah. Perfect for radio. <laughs> so we go to show, and there's eight, eight or nine players. And Donnie Wilson was there, who just got inducted in the Hall of Fame, one of the funniest people I ever knew. They call him Blicker. We had every kind of person on our team known the man, funny, ugly, everything. You know, we had it all. And <laughs> And Donnie Wilson happened to be all of them, you know. Yeah. And, and so we had, and then pinball was there. We had Rocket there. We had a bunch of guys there. They were so after the whole day, John Gregory comes up to me. He goes, "Thank you for coming." I said, "Why?" He goes, "I was getting calls. I didn't know how to answer. They were very pissed off people, right?" So I said, "No problem, John. Great guy, right?" So we leave, and, and John Candy goes to me. This is the first time ever that I've been a straight man. I said, you, yeah. you got the funniest team in the whole wide world. I said, we do, John. We. It's us. It's always us. You know, and he goes, you're right, coach. You're right. You know, he goes, that was the funniest show I've ever been on. Well, that's high praise from <laughs> so a that's, comedian that's that you guys have shown him on the comedy front. always the players first, you know, and after the game, how we won the game was, I think we were a point uh, up by three points or four points, something like that. And we were punting out of the end zone. And it was like, we had to punt the ball. There was like 20 seconds left in the game, and we win the game, okay? But if we punt the ball, they kick a field goal, they tie the game, something like that. So I said to Rocket, you're the punter, Rocket. (laughs) Never punted the ball in my life. (laughs) Yeah. I said, I don't want you to punt the ball. I said, can you burn off 20 seconds? He goes, uh, I'm not sure what his, what the time was, but it was under a minute. Yeah. And um, so he, he goes back there, and he's got this big-ass smile on his face. So I said, I said, Rocket, you run around. As soon as somebody gets close to you, you run out of the end zone. Give, yep. up, give up two points, right? We win by a point. Yep. And he goes, nobody will touch me, coach. Nobody. Ooh understand that i go yes sir so he goes back then he's running around I, I i could hear him giggling as he's running around like that and then the guy comes to town he steps out and uh we, we win the game yeah and uh rocky comes off the field goes coach i've never done that in my whole life i said this cfl is awesome i said we can do so many things in the cfl you know and then when i put him at quarterback and i I would have the quarterback in the game, and I, I'd send in uh, Paul Nastasic, and he'd go in the game, and the quarterback would run out of the game, and Rocket would be the quarterback. And we had this spread out series where he could pass or throw. Okay. First time we ran, he went 70 some yards for a touchdown. I said, Rocket, there's guys wide open. He says, Coach, I was wide open. When I went out, he said, There's nobody on the edge. I took off. Nobody caught him, right? I mean, he had so much speed, it was unbelievable. 
he was uh, rocket was the MVP for that 1991 great cup championship game. I mean, you've seen so many athletes now in your career. Did he really stand out when you think back at, at the rocket and his time with you? I've had a lot of great players, you know, I mean, players that made coat, you know, like player of the year. I mean, you know, Murph Fernandez, David Williams, all those guys, you know, they're really good. The thing that rocket had, first of all, he came here under a contract that was unbelievable. He was the number one overall draft pick in the NFL because I remember Bobby Ackles called me. He left BC and went to uh, the Dallas Cowboys and he called me up and he said, I heard a rumor you guys signed Rocket. We're going to pick him number one. I said, you better pick somebody else because <laughs> we just signed him. He goes, what? And I told him, we signed him. So what they did was they traded Herschel Walker, got two more draft picks and rebuilt their team. We had three number one draft picks and rebuilt a team that made them the Dallas Cowboys like they're, wow. like they're supposed to be, right? Isn't that so amazing, that okay. connection and to that? Rocky, yeah, and when Rocky was done with us, I think he played 10 more years down with Dallas. You know? Okay. But nobody used Rocky like we did. I mean, I abused him. I mean, I wore his ass yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> you got <laughs> and, value for your money, you, coach. Yeah, and Pinball goes to me. You know, I remember when Pinball hired me back and uh, we had Bashir Livingston. I wanted him to play on offense, like pinball. And pinball goes, Coach, you about wore me out. And I said, hey, you're in the Hall of Fame, right? You're on that wall up there, right? How many people have gained over 4,000 yards of total offense? You. Yep. So I'm going to continue to wear you out, you know? Well, and, uh, I mean, pinball was unbelievable. But anyway. Um, Coach, before we get to pinball, of the of the four people I want to ask you specifically about, we talked about Wayne Gretzky, John Candy, the Rocket. I want to ask you about Bruce McNall. He was the multimillionaire owner of the Los Angeles Kings. He somehow engineered the impossible by getting Wayne Gretzky out of Edmonton and over to his LA. Remember about Bruce McNall and and working with him? Well, Bruce was a man with vision. I mean, he wasn't afraid to spend his money. Whether he had the money or not is another question, but. Basically, what happened, he wanted the reason why we signed Rocket was the same reason why he signed Wayne Gretzky. And uh, basically, he was our Wayne Gretzky. You know, Rocket came out of the U.S., the number one overall pick, and uh, we stole. <laughs> and the rest is history. So Bruce had the, the courage to do that. And it really, really was a special year. I mean, there was no other year like 1991. Think about it. Uh, the dynamics was just perfect. You know, it was, it was a, like today, a perfect day. It was a perfect storm, you know, that yeah. day. So uh, all I remember is I was happy to be part of it. And I wasn't going to be the guy that screwed it up. <laughs> well, you I think being coach of the year and winning the Grey Cup, you did your end of the bargain, coach. I want to fast forward to 2003. You returned to the Toronto Argonauts as their offensive coordinator, serving under the coach, Mike Pinball Clemens, who you used to coach, as you talked about. What was that role reversal like? What was your relationship like? And is Pinball actually as fantastic a human being as we're all led to believe? Better. Better. Yeah, you know, um, Pinball claims he's five foot six. He's five foot four and a half of all heart, you know. 
I remember one day I was in the huddle calling a, I wanted a certain play and I looked up and here's pinball. Actually, I looked down, <laughs> yeah. pinball. Then I looked up, it was Robert Drummond and they both had the same smile. All you could see was ivory. I mean, yep. they're, they're, their smiles were so big that I, I, I said, I don't care what you call, just give the ball to either 31 or 28 or, or Drummond. Yep. And I left the huddle. <laughs> and uh, Dunnigan goes to me, well, what do you want? I says, call anything that gets those one of those two guys the ball. He yeah. goes, got you, coach, you know. Pinball is really special. I mean, not only as a player, but as a person. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes you may not agree with him, but I always know that his heart's in the right place. Yes. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and he'll give you, he played hurt. He played tough. He, I mean, the guy was a, a magician out there. I remember John Conjemi had to play a quarterback. That's the year we went through five quarterbacks. Wow. I think it was 1990. And pinball had a little check down route. In those days, in 1990, I didn't know him well. And all I know is Don told me before the season started, he said, I want you to look at number 31, Michael Pinball Clemens. If he can't play on the offense, I'm going to cut him. I went, why? He said, well, he's only a special specialist at this time yeah so i he said go look, look at some videos so when i looked at the video i saw him return a punt and i saw him return a kickoff i walked back into don match's room about, about 10 minutes later and i said he can play on offense yeah and the rest was history i agree now if i was a lot smarter i would have put him in a slot a lot quicker because i was a two-back guy and I remember a game where I had what we call 90 protection, where you go out and cut the end man, the lineman squeeze inside, take care of the inside gap, and get rid of the ball quick. So Donegan called a 90 pass, a quick pass, and, and pinball is in the back for He comes out to cut this guy. I mean, he had no qualms about trying to block. Mm -hmm. No fear. 300 pound fair. No fear. So he... He gets up there to block, and he goes to cut the guy as he bends over. And now he's just a speed bump, right? Yeah. The guy hurdles him and hits Dunnigan right in the back. Oh, said, boy. Okay, coach, that's not on pinball. That's on Coach Rita. So after that, I moved him up in the slot, or I released him hot, and he became one of our leading receivers. And the rest is history because when we were at trips, two backs, I moved pinball to the weak side slot, they had a linebacker covering him in the first time in the league, right? Yep. So they changed that linebacker to an import after that. Yeah. And then everybody started going 32 formation with five receivers. And I go, that is not the same because there is no pinball. Yep. See what I mean? Yep. So if that if that fifth receiver can line up in the backfield, run the ball some, then then it's similar. But Everybody today goes to five rides, and that other guy is not a running back. I like to put a running back there because then we get, I can shift him back in the backfield, move him motion. I can do all kinds of stuff with him, you know. And we had a bunch of uh, things that kind of look alike so that they couldn't zero in on us, you know. That, that was my only concern. 
is that we do something and I don't have a counter to their counter, to that play. You know, so we always develop the counter. If they do this, if they do that, then the quarterback always knew that he had this. Well, clearly, Pinball, Toronto legend, not just for his playing career, but for everything he's done for the city. Coach, the other person you maintain a special relationship with is uh, Damon Allen. He had 23 CFL seasons, and you spent 13 of those together with him. Three of your six Grey Cup rings were tied directly to Damon's work on the field. And when you reminisce about your accomplishments, uh, you've said in the past, you owe 50% of your Grey Cup rings to Damon Allen. Tell us about your relationship uh, with Damon I, I Allen. I think we earned those three Grey Cups at three different clubs, too, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Uh, Damon is a special guy, but let me go back to pinball for one second. Sure. John Conjemi was a quarterback, and and John was a hell of a guy. Pittsburgh, you know, good guy, great backup. You can always trust him. Well, he had to go in the game, and so he's we were running uh, we were running forty eight two outs by the inside receiver, two goals by, and I checked the back down over the middle, and pinball checked down, and John is trapped. So he runs up to the line of scrimmage to scramble, and Pinball's sitting right in front of him. So he underhands the ball to him, but maybe three yards. Pinball catches the ball, and there's two guys right there. Mm-hmm. He turns around and makes both those guys miss in a small amount of space and goes for a big game for a first down, right? <laughs> That's Pinball. Yes. He can make you miss in a phone booth, you know? <laughs> but going back to who's the next guy? Damon Allen. Dave Nine. Gumby. Gumby. <laughs> Gumby. They call him Gumby because this guy can manipulate his body into any position you want. Yoga doesn't even count because he can he's like a pretzel. He can move it. And he can throw the ball right hand, left hand, great athlete. I remember we were playing BC and they had James West and Tyrone Williams playing. And there were two outside backers, I think, at the time. And they were playing a 30 front, and we go into BC, and I says, Damon, don't run the naked. We call it the Sally Ran against these guys when they go, when they have um, West and Tyrone on the same side because they run a double jet, you know, blitz. Okay, coach. So Damon throws for 300 yards. He rushes for 179, and every time he pulled the ball was when there were two guys were on the same side. Yeah. But they came so flat that he was able to get outside of them, and they were chasing his ass all night. You know, Damon is an unbelievable athlete uh, with a gifted arm. Um, he can get he can get himself out of trouble better than almost any quarterback I've coached, including Doug Flutie and. Dunnigan and all those great quarterbacks that happened to have a chance to coach. Um, he was very special that way. Um, <laughs> I remember one story. I was at Edmonton, and we had uh, we didn't have a first good nine weeks. Finally, it's just I brought the offense in, and I started talking to him, and. Uh, and I said, we're going to simplify our offense and we'll depend everything on Damon and Lucius Floyd. Because we had Marsh, Blake Marshall had gotten hurt and Michael Souls, and we'll build our game around those three guys. And, and, and we did that. And uh, we simplified it and, and we ran a lot of nakeds with 
Sally Rands and and different pass patterns off of it. And we went right down the wire. And uh, I think we won eight out of nine games the last nine weeks, something like that. And we go to the Grey Cup. And um, what happened? Oh, we beat, I think we beat one of them. Oh, then we had to play Calgary with Doug Flutie, and it snowed. I mean, yep. dude, it snowed. Then they plowed the field and snowed again. And I remember the old saying about Doug, what do you get? What's the difference between a Flutie and a Looney? <laughs> and the Looney, you got four quarters. With the Flutie, you get three quarters. Yeah, his, hands had, his hands had froze. Yeah. So they're going to have to win the game. He had to pull himself out of the game, and we win the game. You know, and uh, so Damon had an uncanny ability to get out of trouble, and and he, he made me look good all the time. You know, I mean, I well, said, that's I, just exactly the way we designed it. I, <laughs> I don't know anyone more humble than you. Every every answer you've given me is uh, you, you gave them a a, a broad uh, strategy, and they they went out and did it all, which is true. But you had to give them the strategy. I want to talk about your coaching philosophy a bit, Adam. It is said that a pat on the back is only 18 inches away from a kick in the ass. What's your philosophy on needing to treat different players differently? Uh, First of all, I admire my players. I mean, they're unbelievable athletes. Um, Most of my players were very, very, very professional. not that they didn't have a good time, but, you know, they knew when and when not to, right? Mm-hmm. So we had a good bunch of guys. And uh, my philosophy was to let a, let the players own their team, give them ownership, uh, guide them, love them, hug them, kick them, you know? <laughs> and uh, the the prodding part is is, I hate to do that, it's not within my personality to be hard on a guy, but sometimes you have to, you know. But invariably, I'm a hugger, you know. Yep. So if I'm really hard on a guy, I try not to let him go in the locker room without a hug and say tomorrow's going to be a better day. Now, in training camp, I'm a little bit more brutal because I got to find my team. Yep. And, uh, you know, so my philosophy is is basically – Creating an environment where these guys can flourish, with not too many, too much noise. You know, I tell the guys to ignore the noise. Whatever you think is good is not as good as you think. Whatever you think is bad is never as bad as you think. Mm-hmm. You know, so we live within that, and then we lived in a culture of there's certain things that we have to do. There's no doubt about it to get better. And like I told you, sometimes. Coach doesn't have all the control. You think you do. The players do, right? Yep. So those losses, those five losses, were humbling experiences for us and the players. They got them better. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'd love to have gone 18 and over, but I doubt that would that would have happened to us. Yeah. You know, maybe the following year, if we would have kept everybody, then maybe we could have, but we couldn't keep everybody. Yeah. So, you know, um, it's it's a philosophy, basically, what I thrived under when I was a player. Yep. You know, and as a coach, you know. Um, so I, I wanted to make 
those guys experience memorable. But now, there's actually one or two players along the way that's not going to agree with you. It's not, that no matter what you do, how many times you talk to them, they're not going to, they're not going to fit, mm-hmm. you know. So then you have to make a hard decision whether he's good enough for the club or because when you choose a player or a coach, you got to think about everybody around them. Do they fit? You know, you know what I mean? It's Absolutely. There's, there's a fine balance you know, between there. And it's also a fine balance between how are you going to coach the guy? Like Arlen Bruce, he wanted me to coach him. I don't give a damn if he did everything correctly on every play. He wanted to know that I was watching him. You know, so I'd always once in a while yell, hey, Arlen. <laughs> Even though I was watching somebody else, I yeah. just come to my mind, I better get Arlen in the picture. Right? Yeah. Mary Fernandez is kind of the same way. So whenever I called a pattern, I wanted his attention. I would also say like 52 Murph. Then he knew that, you know, I was thinking the quarterback was thinking that direction. Now, maybe 20% of it would go to him, depending on the read. But, you know, sometimes I would say 50 go Murph regardless. Then they knew, I don't give a shit. Unless there are three guys on Murph, we're going to get the ball to Murph, right? So once you identify your talent, then you, then you, decide how you're going to distribute the ball. Sure. It's like the last meeting, every time we have a reunion, Mazzotti brings up the same damn thing. Paul Mazzotti. Okay, we got to get, he's imitating me. Coach Rita, you know, okay, everybody's complaining about who's getting the ball. This is my priority. One, rocket. Two, (laughs) pinball. Three, David Williams. Four, I'm going down the list. Six, Paul Mazzotti. He goes, every time he did it, I said, yeah, but Paul, whose name is up on the board? Whose name is up on the wall? You know what I mean? Yep. Because he was pretty special. You know, and wow. it's just when, you, when you're when you trying to figure out how you're going to distribute the ball, you got to have a sequence of events because otherwise you forget about those guys that can make plays. Yep. You know? Not that Paul wasn't a playmaker, but he was a down-the-field kind of guy, medium range. You know, he had his role, right? So – uh, when everybody played their role, it all fit. You know? well, and then they started realizing what we're trying to do. It doesn't mean because I want to go to Rocket that he's going to get the ball every time. Yeah. Means we start there and we go and we distribute it from there. You're like the orchestra leader, bringing it all together. And one thing that you clearly show, Coach, is they're only going to care, the players, when they know how much you care about them. You're so obviously a, a player's coach. Your time has been great, and I really appreciate it as we wrap up. I appreciate all the time you spent with us and all these stories. I wanted to ask you about what your plans are for the remainder of this year and beyond. What sideline should we be looking on to find Coach Rita? Well, I'll be uh, at Football North uh, from July 19th to November, or end of September, October. Um, we have a family union at the end of October in Las Vegas uh, on the Kuri side of my family, which is the Japanese side. We're all about the same age, so this is probably the last time we see each other because they're all from Hawaii. And and then I'm not sure if I'm going to go to Europe. I just turned down a job because 
one of the reasons why I retired from the from the CFL was not because I disliked it or anything. It's because I wanted to do other things in my life, mm-hmm. and that was travel. And last year, I took a job in Barcelona, which my wife loves Spain. She was yep. at the beach all the time, and I was working my ass off <laughs> in forty two degree temperature, and um, and. Basically, it was the wrong time of the year. I remembered why. One of the reasons why I retired from the CFL is the summers. Okay. Canada has the most beautiful summers in the world. Yes. Right? So after the Barcelona thing, I got another call from two more franchises in a new league. It's a new professional league in Europe. And I said, I, I just have to turn them down. I mean, it's the wrong time of the year. So now I'm looking... Uh, I'm talking to some teams in Italy because that's where I want to be is in Italy. Um, we loved it there. The four years we were there. And if I go back to Europe this coming 2023, it'll be in Italy probably, you know. Right. So, uh, I mean, the culture and I mean, everything. I love it in Europe because every time I look around, everything's older than me. <laughs> <laughs> and and the food's not bad either. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. If you like, see, you know, I mean, Italian food, unbelievable. If you go to any country, probably the best food they serve is Italian. You know. Well. So. I'll, I'll tell you but something. But I like the seafood. I like <laughs> I like everything about the country. You know. Well, once a coach, always a coach. And the the smart thing you've done is you combined it with all these other, you've seen the world, you've learned about all these other cultures. Adam Rita, I want to thank you again for your time. I wish you continued success. I look forward to seeing the next program you're helping work with. And to the listener, we want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of Coach Adam Rita, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Candace Sampson, the voice behind what she said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. 
Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to WhatSheSaidTalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.